You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And I have uh, Dr. Miriam Kalimian. She's a ketogenic nutritionist, an author, and a cancer patient advocate. Uh, she's the head of uh, Dietary Therapies LLC. Uh, she specializes in the implementation of ketogenic therapies. She earned her Master of Education from Smith College, Master of Human Nutrition from Eastern Michigan University. She's board certified in nutrition by the Board for Certification for Nutrition Specialists. And uh, I met her recently in January at the Metabolic Health Summit. A uh, very, very nice lady, super knowledgeable. I'm working my way through her book, which is, uh, again, so chock full of information. It's a really great book. So, Miriam, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great today, Richard. Thanks for asking me. Well, good. Um, if you're okay with it, how did you get interested in nutrition in general and then especially ketogenic nutrition? Yeah, that's a very personal story for me. Um, back in uh, 2004, my husband and I and our young son, he was four years old, Rafi, uh, just living our lives here in Montana and sort of moving along and um, just like of a bolt out of the blue, uh, we found out that Rafi had a brain tumor. And of course, that just, you know, shifts everything in your life just yeah, in a heartbeat, right. in just a single heartbeat. So back in 2004, you know, Dr. Google didn't provide a whole lot of information. And what I did find online was just terrifying. So we went along with uh, the standard of care, which was... Um, you know, chemotherapy, uh, 54 treatments in 14 months is very intensive, almost weekly. And uh, that we were told was our best hope at, at uh, you know, getting a handle on it. It was inoperable, size of an orange. So, you know, that wasn't an option presented to us initially. Well, the, the chemo that, you know, we, we did this for 14 months and it didn't stop the tumor. So we moved to the, yeah, it was just dreadful to get that news. You know, we thought, oh, you know, now we can get a breather in here. And the first uh, post-treatment MRI they did, it showed the tumor it was just racing. So um, we moved to the next therapy, which is was another 12 weeks of weekly chemotherapy um, while we were trying to figure out what else to do. And we weren't getting any consensus among the, the top centers in the country for pediatric brain tumors. Actually, we put out 12 requests, got seven answers and six different uh, opinions. 
so only two of the answers we got were along the same line. And now I know that that wouldn't really have been a good option for him anyway. So we put him through that 12 weeks and then we did the unthinkable. We, uh, we had uh, surgery and Rafi actually had two surgeries and uh, they may have, you know, stopped the tumor in the short term, but uh, in one of the regions, the tumor was back plus 25% in eight weeks. So we actually kind of stimulated some growth there. And it invaded new areas as well. So now it's time for palliative care, they tell us. You know, only a little over two years into this, they're going to move them to palliative care, which meant they had no expectation of a response by the tumor, but just treat him until he's gone. And, uh, you know, that was just unacceptable. And I'm back online looking at forums and Dr. Google. and, And I found... Actually, I was not looking for a diet. I was looking for other treatments, found something I wanted to print, uh, came back a few days later. And instead of what I had initially found, I found Dr. Thomas Seyfried's uh, newly published study on uh, ketogenic diet and a mouse model of glioma. And it just seemed too good to be true. You know, it's like if something's too good to be true, do you trust it? And I didn't. Um, but I emailed them to get a little more information and, and not expecting to hear back. And instead, that wonderful man, he just got right back to me and uh, sent me some other things to look at. And so by the end of a week or so of just looking at this material and looking at Charlie Foundation and some of the prior research, um, it sort of became a, well, why wouldn't we try this? We have no other option. So it's not like we were refusing something that was out there. All we were, all we wanted to do was avoid avoid this palliative care that was going to result in in infections and transfusions and ultimately not be successful. So we, with the support of actually with his local pediatrician, um, who was just a wonderful man, and his local oncologist, not one of the big centers, they both understood what kind of a corner we were backed into, and they were said, "Yeah, go ahead and do it." You know. You have the protocol for kids with epilepsy, just use that. So that's what we did with the hope that there would be some response. And after three months, the first post-keto MRI that we looked at was an amazing response to the treatment. So this was tumor shrinking back and, you know, and, and his health was improving. So it was just amazing. It's not what we expected. Now, what was the uh, approximation of the therapy and how long did, did it take until you saw improvement? Uh, that was three months. He was on the diet for three months. He he was on a clinical trial. Oh, I forgot to mention that one. Yeah, he failed that too. That's when they were moving him to palliative care. He was on a clinical trial and he finished the clinical trial. And within a, like a day or two, we had him on the ketogenic diet uh, following the protocol that they use for kids with epilepsy. So it was like meticulous. We had, We were calculating out things to the second decimal point for protein and carbs and fats. Uh, and I realized now that you know, as important as it seemed to me at the time, it really wasn't necessary. Um, it's just that, that feeling of being overwhelmed and wanting to do it right. And I see that all the time with the people that I work with. So a lot of my job is saying, hey, you know, you can really simplify it. We still want this to be rigorous, but, you know, you, you don't have to be doing exactly what you're doing. You know, we can lighten this up a little bit um, to make it more reasonable part of your day. So, yeah, and if any of your listeners want that information, just uh, email me at, um, I'm sure you'll post something on your site too, but uh, info at dietarytherapies.com and I'll send you my keto food list and simple meal template and that gives you um, the assurance that this is something that's doable. 
even with cancer, even with all the nuances you need for cancer. Was it, I mean, just to characterize it quickly, was it easily doable? Was it a little bit tricky or? It's not tricky. It's just not convenient. So it's not that this is difficult. I mean, this is even after he had this response, Richard, we were having medical professionals tell us, well, but the diet is too difficult. It's too challenging. It's too restrictive. It's too limiting. It's like, this is crazy. That's crazy. When you compare eating food to showing up, you know, traveling to New York City once a week to be in a clinical trial, just so they can draw blood and look at what's going on. You know, it just having to do that, or just changing what you're putting on the plate for your kid. Come on, what's the difficult thing there? Sitting in the waiting room while he's getting surgery or, you know, or shopping for the foods that he needs to in order to do this. So I just say, don't don't let anybody put that obstacle up for you that this is too challenging because for most people, it's not. If you have uh, limitations in mobility and you don't have anybody home to help you, then it can be a challenge. But um, it's just about eating food. It's nothing remarkable or out of the ordinary. It's just about sticking to this list of foods right here. Why do you think the, um, the doctors were so against it or so hesitant or so reluctant or finding reasons to, you know, wring their hands and tell you not to do it? The majority of doctors will just say diet doesn't matter. And that's the green light to do what you want. But there are doctors that will put up these additional obstacles and they'll say, oh, it's harmful or, uh, you know, it's going to damage your kidneys or they come up with stuff that is not based in science at all. There's no science to support that kind of talk. Uh, the main thing that I have to be careful of when I'm working with someone is that we have worked through the list of contraindications to the diet. And again, I have that. I can send that to people. Love to share what I know with people. Um, so just email me. I'll send you that. Um, so once you've established that you are a good candidate for the diet, then uh, the other obstacle becomes, okay, where are you as far as your healthy weight goes? And what are you doing in terms of your treatment that's likely to interfere with either GI function or with appetite, taste, any of that? So, you know, you got to kind of clear that out of the way. Because uh, honestly, if somebody's coming to me because they've been moved to hospice, they've run out of options, and they're now too underweight to be able to um, uh, start a ketogenic diet, because you are going to lose some weight starting a ketogenic diet. So if they're already really compromised like that, that needs to be medically managed uh, very tightly. And I can't do that remotely. Nobody can do that remotely. You need to be working with somebody um, nearby in a clinic. And there are precious few people out there available to do that for cancer. You know, you look at the other applications of the diet, Richard, and it's the assumption for a lot of these like weight, you know, obesity. Of course, that person's overweight. Uh, diabetes. The majority of people with type 2 diabetes are overweight. So they have this little bit of luxury moving into the diet where they can lose some weight. So to me, when you refer to um, people, yeah, when you refer to people that, you know, were, I guess, substantially underweight or weakened, is that what's called cancer cachexia, the wasting, or is that something else? Yeah, if they're being moved to uh, hospice treatment, um, that usually is cachexia or extreme sarcopenia, which is muscle wasting, um, or they, their numbers have crashed. You know, their uh, white blood cell numbers have crashed and, you know, and, and they can't continue with the treatment that they're on. And so the expectation is from there, uh, the progression is going to be rapid. So, yeah, if they're being moved to hospice and, you know, they're five foot nine and, a, and 115 pounds, that's not a good sign. That's not a, a good indication for the diet, because as you move into the ketogenic diet, like I said, you're going to be 
losing weight. And also people who are cachexic don't have much of an appetite. They might only be taking in like one quarter of what they need to sustain their body weight as it is without further degradation. Um, and, you know, if that's all they can take in, it's not likely they're going to be able to maintain their weight on a ketogenic diet, even though we think of it, well, it's high fat and fat has more calories per gram, but quite often their GI is off too. So they, they're not able to digest the amount of fat that they need and they can't absorb nutrients. Right. There's all right. kinds of dietary problems with malnourished people coming into keto. Uh, you need a very dedicated team of people, family and other support. And like I said, medical in order to even consider starting it. But that's not the case with most of the people I'm working with. They're either at a good, decent weight or they're heavy. And if they're heavy, they do have that luxury of losing some weight as they move into ketosis. It's not a bad thing. And that's to go back to what you said about doctor's objection. They see unintentional weight loss as a really bad sign in cancer. It's like that person is going to continue to spiral down. That's what they look at it as, uh, you know, oh, they're not able to take in nutrients. But if it's happening because they're successful with a ketogenic diet, that weight loss uh, is not necessarily a terrible thing. And it may actually be one of the things that slows down angiogenesis, which is the development of the new blood vessels that feed tumors. So that kind of initial weight loss uh, can put that kind of pressure on the body and specifically on that new network of blood vessels that are feeding the tumor. Because the body's going, well, I, you know, we don't have enough to feed everything here. We don't have enough nutrition. Are we really going to like funnel it over here to these dysfunctional cells? Now we, we better clean up our act here and save what we have for the cells that we need to stay alive. So, all right, that makes sense why doctors, they, I guess it's like something with diabetes. They fear hypoglycemia at all times. So they push everyone in the opposite direction to their detriment. Sounds like the same thing with weight. Well, with diabetes, you have that, um, you have that added uh, complication of where's their insulin at? Are they not making enough insulin or are they so insulin resistant that it doesn't have that action on their body? So hypoglycemic in, uh, in diabetes can be like, as far as I've heard, I'm not an expert in diabetes, but you know, I know people who panic when they get to 65 or 70 milligrams per deciliter of blood sugar because they're sure that they're hypoglycemic now. Actually, one of my son's nurses, she decided to do this diet for her diabetes. And when she was sitting on the couch taking her blood pressure, uh, blood sugar one day, and it was at like just right around 70 and she panicked. She was like, oh, she's got to eat something. It's like, well, are you experiencing any symptoms? No. Well, now you've got these ketones that are covering the energy that your brain needs. They're making up for the glucose that's not there. Uh, you know, so it was like she became comfortable with hey, even as a diabetic, my levels can get that low uh, and I'm still okay. But I have to say, if you are a diabetic, uh, it's best to be working and, and you're on these medications that mess with your insulin one way or another, either stimulate insulin production. You really should be looking at Eric Westman's Heal Care Clinic or at Verta Health, which is another um, online platform for managing type 2 diabetes. And they're excellent. They're both out there. They have different strengths. And anybody that's listening to this podcast that has diabetes should be looking at that. Yeah, the reason I bring it up is because, you know, again, I know this is not the topic of conversation, but it just sounds like a close analog to what people that are affected by cancer are told by doctors. And the fear doctors have, you said, like of 
weight loss without explanation. Same thing in diabetes. It just seems like they're similar. That's why I brought it up. Yeah, that's like a failure of insulin. And there are a lot of similarities there, obviously, but there are some, you know, important differences, nuances with cancer. I had somebody write me yesterday from the UK saying that she's heard from three different people that ketogenic diet for brain tumors can uh, damage the liver and result in hypoglycemia. And it's like, I have never seen this with the hundreds of people that I've worked with, with glioblastoma. The ketogenic diet is not causing liver damage, not causing liver damage. The damage that's going to be caused is by the medications that are used. And at that point, you know, you've got to make sure that glucose regulation is stable um, with the involvement of the liver. That can be a problem. That's one of the contraindications to the diet in my work is that, you know, are your liver enzymes sky high? Are they off the charts? And it's not about the diet. Uh, and hypoglycemia, well, like we just talked about, that's not likely. Well, let's get into this. Um, you know, from what I, the feel of it for me is the advice may be go on a ketogenic diet or do this or do that. So let's say the advice is go on a ketogenic diet. From what I understand, usually that's where the advice stops, whether the person hears it from family or reading online or whatever it is. Then they go and they try to find out, all right, what is the thing called the ketogenic diet? And they implement it. To various degrees, they may be doing all kinds of things that may confound the effects or make it not as effective or, you know, so I'm just making this up, but it just sounds like, you know, doing the diet great, but what are some of the parameters for doing it right? What are some of the metrics or measurements that you can take that are accessible to most people to make sure that you're doing it right and course correcting so that it is effective for you? Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Um, It's the abundance of misinformation out there and the lack of clear guidelines, which is I ran into, um, specific to cancer, that drove me to write my book, uh, Keto for Cancer. And I've put as many of the nuances for cancer that I thought of at the time of the writing of the book, things like uh, the amount of protein, like in a regular ketogenic diet, the one you'll see, the celebrity ketogenic diet, Uh, nobody is tracking the amount of protein. It's not really an important factor for them. But if you're doing this diet as a way to reduce the availability of uh, nutrients to cancer cells, then the signaling that goes on as the result of protein being in circulation is something you have to be mindful of. So that's one of the nuances, keeping uh, protein to just where it needs to be in order to support you. Uh, so that's lower than what people would do for like a diabetes diet or a weight loss diet. Um, well, can, I, sure um, that you- can, I, can I step back for a quick second? I should have said, I should have asked you, you know, what is the mechanism or what is, why do we think that a ketogenic diet will help someone with cancer? You know, so let's oh, cover okay. that just briefly and then we'll go into the particulars. It has been covered many other places, but let's recap it a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So it's about the nutrients. It's about the supply of nutrients that uh, cancer prefers. And we, we are, I bet you that the majority of your listeners have already heard that cancer thrives on glucose. And this is very true. It does thrive on glucose, but it also thrives on amino acids such as glutamine. So like some cancers are very, uh, like pancreatic cancer, colon cancer, they love that amino acid glutamine. And so just as you can't keep glucose out of your bloodstream or you'd be dead totally, 
Uh, same with glutamine. You have to have that circulating in your body. Um, and But it doesn't have to come from the foods that you eat. Glutamine is going to be in protein foods, but it's not the glutamine that you're ingesting in keto-friendly amounts. That's the problem. It's the glutamine that's recycled within the cell. And you mentioned cachexia before. The breakdown of muscle tissue will release a lot of glutamine into the system. Mm. So, so there's this thing that happens when you are mimicking the fasting state. And that's what keto is. You're mimicking a state of like starvation. Uh, when you are not taking glucose in through the diet, body goes, oh, you know, hey, uh, we got to do something here. They're not getting enough nutrition here. So we're going to make glucose from, you know, the liver is going to take over the job of making glucose, and that's going to supply the glucose that we need beautifully for the body. Um, and, you know, and we're going to use these fats, there's an abundant amount of fat stored on this person, and we're going to use it to run heart and muscle and to make ketones, to synthesize ketones that can go to the brain and to other tissue and be utilized in place of glucose. Okay. So that's the mechanism. So yeah. cancer cells prefer glucose, and in some cases, glutamine. So the mm -hmm. ketogenic diet aims to reduce as much as possible the amount of glucose that's available and, and instead right. uh, encourage the use of ketones as fuel for all cells in the body. Right. And there's, there's metabolic advantages to having the ketones as fuel because the abnormal um, dysfunctional mitochondria that are in cancer cells can't really utilize ketones as efficiently. Some people would say maybe not even at all. Um, compared to the uh, healthy, normal cells. So by compromising the cancer cells, you're setting them up. You're putting a target on their back uh, so that the natural processes within the body that are designed to clear out diseased cells will recognize them as dysfunctional and out they go. So it's not a perfect system, Richard. This is ketogenic diet, I want to stress. It's not a standalone therapy for people, um, not the majority of people anyway. It's all we could do for our son for the majority of the time that he was alive, um, but ultimately he did succumb to his disease, but it was six years after we started the diet. And that was how much longer than the doctors told you that it would go, it would make it? Well, they didn't put a time limit on it uh, at that point. They, he just, the doctor had said, the oncologist had said, 18 months was all we could expect um, as a hold on that. And I know from um, you know my work with people and just reading the literature on this, that once a brain tumor get to that point, it's a rapid, a very rapid decline within a matter of months. So right. my son had good quality of life for most of that six years. And, it, you know, yeah, it, it, would I do anything differently? You bet I'd do things differently. There's a lot I've learned since then. We put him on the diet in 2007. He died in 2013. And there's been an explosion of information since then. And I share every bit of it that I can with the public and with the people I work with individually. Yeah, no, I understand why. Um, so, all right, back to some of the tweaks that make the ketogenic diet work better than it might otherwise work, you know, for people with cancer. So you said, you know, monitor the protein intake. Um, so mm -hmm. what, or too little protein, whatever that means, what would be the effects on a given person? Okay, too much protein. Um, when you have amino acids in circulation, and that's what protein foods are, you know, you take in food that has protein, it's basically the building blocks of the protein are these amino acids. And um, when you have an abundance of those in circulation, you're telling your body that it's a free-for-all. You know, we've got plenty of nutrition here. Everybody can have some, even you cancer cells over there. We've got plenty, so take it. 
And these act as signaling, anabolic signaling, saying, okay, cancer, you can grow. So the other thing that happens is we don't have a way to store amino acids. So uh, there's a very small, what they call the amino acid pool in cells. But for the most part, we don't store it. So we got to do something with it. So, you know, we take it apart and then those amino acids can go to the liver and be converted to glucose. So that's uh, one thing that can happen. That's the gluconeogenesis part. You know, what that suggests then is if the body doesn't store amino acids very well, if you went through a period where you cycled, you know, you, you had protein as you like, and you go through very little protein, do you guess that that might put a stress on cancer? You know, particularly well, one that, that likes water, glutamine. It's not just about the glutamine. It would have more of a universal effect there. But it, you can't do that for very long because in our evolutionary biology, uh, at times where we were faced with a total food shortage, not just this manipulated fasting mimicking that we're doing, but total food shortage, starvation, your body would take apart muscle tissue in order to recycle those amino acids. And some of them would go back to muscle and some of them would be used to make enzymes and hormones that our body needs and for repair uh, and, you know, replacement of cell structures. So, I mean, we have this system in place that we can't override or we'd be dead if we tried to override that. So my suggestion for people is to keep the protein as close to just the replacement that you need to use exercise as a way to have your muscles signal for the amino acids that are in circulation. If the muscles are saying, hey, you know, we need the nutrients You've been working us, so we need the nutrients directed over here. That's a good place for them to go. So if we can set up a competition between muscle and cancer cell for those that for that nutrition that's in the for those amino acids in the bloodstream, we want anabolic activity. We want muscle building and protein synthesis in muscle. So that's a good thing. So exercise is a great thing. All right. So a tweak on that would be. Um... Is it better to exercise right before a meal, right after, an hour after, and then is even light exercise good or does it need to be heavy? Any tweaks oh, there? Yeah. Or? Uh, good question. I find that people should avoid heavy exercise um, when they're trying to get into ketosis. It's just one more additional strain for the body. But once you're in ketosis, most people can get back to doing, uh, and once they've been there for a while, made, you know, made the transition, they can get back to doing what they were doing before. So, uh, you know, everybody is sort of an individual, but my take on it, in, just in general terms, like I said, you know, this would have to be tweaked, but in general terms, uh, people can exercise and use those uh, fatty acid stores, you know, without eating. They can exercise in a fasted state, depending on what time of day they're trying to do this. Um, and that's okay. Uh, as far as removing some glucose out of the bloodstream in a safe kind of way, and my advocacy says, okay, you've had a meal, you've got this slight rise in glucose, it's in circulation, insulin's going to respond, where do you want it to go? So if you were to, to do something gentle, some gentle activity, like, a, you know, a nice walk, uh, pleasant walk in nature, preferably, then you would be taking some of that glucose out of the bloodstream in a very safe kind of way. So again, we're just kind of manipulating these pathways that are uh, signaling pathways for what to do with nutrients. We want, we want to push them in the direction that is beneficial for health and a strain on the cancer cells. So you had asked before, and I didn't finish that um, part of it about too, you know, what's the, like the too little um, protein. Right. And again, that depends a lot on, I wish I had a black box warning in my book 
Um, that could, uh, I've sort of done that with my presentations now. It's like, look, if you are older, and by that, I mean, even just past 55, you are more susceptible to losing muscle mass. So let's add a little bit more protein in there and encourage a little, you know, encourage that physical activity, even if you don't feel like you want to do it. Um, and if you're older, even older, like 65, 75, then you need to be really careful with protein and with things like fasting, because we're just as older people, we don't regain that muscle that we lose as quickly as a younger person would. So I'm much more careful with the older adults I work with, and I keep protein higher. But if somebody is young and fit and they have glioblastoma and it's going to take them down if they don't, you know, uh, do this in a more rigorous way, I'll take it down to 0.8 or 1.0 milligrams, excuse me, grams per kilogram of either their body weight or their lean body mass, whatever I think is more appropriate to work with. So if they're at a normal weight, 0.8 grams per kilogram of their body weight. Um, or if they have a good assessment of lean body mass, then I go 1.0 grams per kilogram. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, another thing too is again, if someone has, you know, they find out God forbid they have cancer, um, what types of cancer tend to need certain modifications versus others? I know there's many different hmm. types, but yeah. So are there some? So, you know, yeah. The, um, the protein. Going back to um, that earlier discussion of protein. So bodybuilders and people who are doing ketosis for other reasons, dairy proteins are not an issue for them, uh, un, you know, unless they have a sensitivity, of course, to them. But in cancer, dairy proteins are uh, have more of a stimulation of anabolic pathways. So casein and whey, we, uh, you know, again, I have a PDF on that too, on uh, explaining it in more detail and how to manage these things on a ketogenic diet. So for all people with cancer, I recommend that they really lower their intake of the dairy proteins like cheese. Things like milk aren't even a part of a ketogenic diet, so that's not even a consideration. But for hormone-sensitive cancers, and that would be you know, breast cancer, um, you know, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, the estrogen metabolites that are in dairy fat like in butter and heavy whipping cream, those can be more prog problematic as far as attaching to the estrogen receptors and tricking the cell into thinking that it's a good time for growth, allowing that, not tricking the cell, I shouldn't even say that, allowing the cell mm. to respond to this protein. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense, Richard, because those proteins that are in dairy are meant to turn a baby animal into a full-grown animal in a really short period of time. So they're very mm, anabolic. Sure. They're, yeah. So that we mm. want to avoid that. And I just found out recently that um, non-small cell lung cancer, that there's a certain subset of people that have a uh, hormone response to that as well. And I don't, that's, I can't give you any more information than that. I don't really know. But, you know, when you think about estrogen sensitive cancers, and this is like one of the failures in the traditional nutritional guidelines for cancer, they don't discuss this. So, you know, they don't tell uh, cancer, you know, women with estrogen-sensitive cancers, hey, maybe you should back off this, the dairy fats because of these estrogen metabolites. Because there's no, like, solid, you know, random controlled studies out there, they don't go to the common sense route, which is, hey, estrogen-sensitive cancer, you got an estrogen metabolite that could stimulate it. Let's just err on the side of caution and cut that out of your diet. Instead, they'll say things like, have ice cream as a topping on cake, 
That's an actual mm. quote, Richard, from American Cancer Association uh, nutrition guidelines for people in cancer treatment. Well, that's Have that's ice wrong cream for topping it. Yeah. I, uh, you know, someone in my family is going through chemo right now, and at the infusion center, they're trying to give her uh, donuts and you know all yeah. kinds of high sugar, high carb foods, and you know, so they don't know and they don't. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they don't care, but they certainly don't know, which is ridiculous. I don't think it's that they don't care. It's that there's kind of a two pronged thing. They want to provide these foods that we traditionally think is comfort foods. It's like you know, well, here's your go-to comfort food. Have you know, have a donut. Uh, we love you, so you know, we're giving you these brownies because these brownies are for uh, you know, represent our love to you. That's one thing. And the other thing is back to what we were talking about much earlier about uh, not losing weight, but once, when somebody's cachexic, they're going to lose weight whether they're eating the donuts or not. And the donuts are just going to be fueling the cancer, and they're still going to be losing weight. It's a catabolic cascade that quite often is not about what you know, how many calories you can take in. You can be cachexic on 4,000 calories a day. Well, all right. So when you were talking about some specific kinds of cancer, is there a lookup table, or have you attempted to create one? Where, you know, you say, all right, it looks like your testing shows I have this type of cancer. So these are the tweaks that need to be made to my nutrition to optimize my chances for, you know, slowing the cancer down and maybe even stopping it. Not really. It's more of the general information that I have in my book. I do um, have some concerns about a particular mutation called V, as in Victor 600E, and that it may be able to run on one of the ketone bodies called acetoacetate. And so for those folks, I would rather have them be um, low carb rather than ketogenic. Just get the sugar out, get the starches out, go low carb, but maybe have some more vegetables um, or maybe a couple of tablespoons of like lentils or have a, a root vegetable that they wouldn't normally have on a ketogenic diet just to keep them low carb so that they're not making tons of ketones, but they are running on their fats. So if you can make you know, low carb, you're still going to be running on fatty acids. But why why aren't multiple people heavily invested in making such a table as at least as a first bulwark against cancer, a first uh, way to mitigate, hopefully mitigate its effects? I mean, you know, they have to make the disclaimers. It's not medical advice. You know, check with your, et cetera, check with your doctor, blah, 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 blah. But why is this table not out there and why are the holes in it not trying to be filled in for every type of cancer known? They are trying to fill them in with targeted therapy. So can you imagine... I mean, if you know anything about math, can you imagine taking these thousands of mutations that are possible in cancer and then mixing them in different ways for, you know, each individual cancer can have just a couple mutations, or it may have 50 or 60 mutations, like a brain cancer could have 50 or 60 different mutations. And so if you're mixing them in different combinations, if you're trying for these targeted therapies, you know, how, how quickly are we going to get there? Uh, so they just operate on a couple of the pathways. Well, you look at ketogenic, and because that was an evolutionary process that came to this adaptation to low nutrient availability, it's going to work on all kinds of pathways at the same time. Not going to be a cure, though. It's not going to cure cancer. So, you know, it's a, we could go that route of trying to, you know, develop a table like that. But honestly, I don't see that as possible. Instead, we got to look more at the underlying, hey, is this cancer a glucose avid cancer? Does it take up glucose really 
is this what, what we're looking at here in this cancer? And if you have a cancer that they're looking at the staging of it, the progression of it, or your response to the treatment by looking at a, what they call an FDG PET scan, CT scan, that's looking at where glucose is going in the body, we'll figure the right. odds. This is a glucose avid cancer, and we are going to impact it by lowering the amount of fuel for that tumor, for that cancer. And they have glutamine tracers as well. So they know with specific, with certain cancers, they can look at glutamine and know which cancers are more avid, uh, glutamine avid, taking it up more. But they haven't gotten the, the sense yet of where to take that as far as treatment. And, you know, Dr. Seafried is working on that part of it. He's working with a drug called, it's an acronym of DON, and as a glutamine inhibitor. And we have glucose inhibitors too. But let your body do the majority of the work here and then pulse these other things in where needed to kill off more of the cancer cells or to make them more susceptible to the other treatments that are being offered. But, you know, all the reason, the cancer, go ahead. Yeah, the reason I ask is that the treatments, and this is just my interpretation, so you know, the treatments that are out there right now, chemo, radiation, surgery, et cetera, they're the bluntest instruments I could ever think of. So uh -huh. then there's then it seems like science now wants to go to the opposite end. Oh, we, we need to sequence the cancer and know exactly how to treat this mm -hmm. kind. I'm saying, mm -hmm. where is, is there a middle ground? Can diet be a middle ground, a midpoint where yeah. you create a table, for instance, it's not a 100% specific table, but it has certain flavors on it. You know, like you said, this one's glucose loving, this one's glucose and glutamine loving. This one's just glutamine, this one's ketone. Is it possible to do such a thing and would that be useful as yes. intermediate step? Yes, the tool. answer is yes. And there is actually a cancer researcher. He's a pharma guy. So he's been working for pharmaceutical companies all his professional life. But here's the useful thing in that. He also understands the power of the ketogenic diet. And he knows that the drugs that are most promising in the what they call immunotherapies or the kinase inhibitors, that some of these can actually be enhanced. The effects of these can be enhanced if that person is also on a ketogenic diet. So he's at Weill Cornell and he's developing clinical trials for a couple of different types of cancer, breast cancer, endometrial cancer. There's even a lymphoma he's working on right now where he's using the pharma drug, the, what they call a PR. K3 inhibitor. So this is a certain enzyme, a kinase inhibitor that wasn't very successful on its own. But in combination with a ketogenic diet that is going to lower the flow of glucose into cancer cells, um, it's going to improve outcomes significantly. So yes, um, that is right along the lines of what you're talking about. And that is this synergy between what I call the bottom up, that is all of us out there who've decided we're going to take sugar out of our diets and we're going to do this and that, maybe ketogenic. We're the bottom up. We're doing it on our own without you know this having gone through clinical trials. And then guys like him are the top down. They are working through the steps that are required within the pharmaceutical industry and within the medical community for proving that a certain treatment is going to have a positive outcome, a more positive outcome than what's being done currently. So they're the top down. But there is this intersection of the two where those of us who are willing to 
look at these possibilities for ourselves and understand we are navigating, you know, in uncharted waters here, just, you know, trying to pull what we can of the solid information together that, you know, we're going to be more successful in the long run. The majority of us are going to be more successful than the people that are just sticking with one or the other of those approaches. So no, you can't just do ketogenic by itself. And no, you can't use a PIK3 inhibitor and have it be successful. But the intersection of those two, that's where the success is. So um, any other tweaks that people can uh, can use to try to help themselves? And then, you know, we'll close from there. But that's, that's my last question yeah, yeah. for now. Good quality fat. And ketone supplementation. So the good quality fats are balancing omega-6s to omega-3s, not being afraid of saturated fats. We've got no reason that is that I know of to be fearful of saturated fats when you're not taking them in along with those carbohydrates. The combination of saturated fats and carbohydrates may be a problem for people, but when you eliminate the carbohydrates, the saturated fats are what our body is running on. So that's what our body, when we access our own fat stores, those are saturated fats that we're accessing. So telling me that that's not good for our bodies doesn't doesn't have a sound science base to it for me. So yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So, and then the quality of the fats that you're taking in, like soybean oil, I think is is just uh, whether it's you know GMO or non-GMO or organic or whatever. Soybean oil is inflammatory, very high in those omega-6 oils that our bodies need a tiny bit of, but we're going to get out of healthier foods like nuts. We don't need to be getting it out of soybean oil. So yeah, just being more mindful about the quality of the fats that you're taking in on a ketogenic diet and the quality of the protein food, I think is important. The first priority is getting yourself into ketosis, then you can work on these other things that are going to move your, you know, yourself towards a healthier state. And those would be, uh, you know, limiting the amount of those seed oils um, and, you know, getting, you know, good quality animal proteins, keeping, you know, to non-GMO foods, organic foods when possible, but not exclusively. Like avocado is a perfect example. You don't need to have organic avocados. There's no chemicals tainting those at all. So, yeah, as far as uh, cancer goes and the nuances for cancer, um, people can spend a lifetime upgrading from where they come in. I don't care where they come in. I take people wherever they're coming in and move them to the next step and just open their eyes. And then if they're you know motivated and interested and curious, they're going to keep learning from there. They're going to keep discovering new ways to improve on what they're doing with the diet, but also with other lifestyle factors, which are critical to change. In cancer, you need to get enough sleep. Actually, we all need to get enough sleep. The, you need to get sleep. You need to lower your stress. That's critical in cancer. Um, you know, so a lot of times, depending on where people are at with that, I may spend more time talking about some of these lifestyle factors or some of these other metabolic therapies that can be combined with the diet. So the diet is pretty straightforward stuff. It's how we use it in combination with other metabolic therapies. That's where the potential is. Mm, all right. Well, you know, unfortunately, I know you're only one person. You can't help everyone. But um, mm. what I like to do is in the show notes, you know, put a link maybe to uh, some of the PDFs you mentioned, if you're okay with that, you know, as resources oh, yeah. for people. Or I would rather you know, have them just email me. If they email me, then, okay. um, then I can uh, send it to them because sometimes they may have a question about what I'm sending them. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So what's the best way for people to get in contact? Info at dietarytherapies.com or just go to my website so they can see what it is that I'm doing. Uh, dietarytherapies.com. Okay. Yeah, those are two simple ways. Well, I appreciate you coming on. 
and you know, and all your wisdom. And uh, you know, there's tons of work ahead, but at least that uh, you know we're getting a better understanding of what's going on with cancer and how to mitigate it, or you know, maybe reverse it in cases. So you know, it's good you do what you do, and I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, ultimately, Richard, what we need is clinics that combine these therapies and offer support to people. People thrive when they are supported. And that is something that happens. Uh, it, you know, they get support within a conventional oncology clinic. But, you know, the people that I work with, that I work with, or even worse, people who are just like, you know, trying to get information off the internet, they have no support network outside of, you know, what resources they can pull around themselves. Um, and we need a more coordinated, uh, centralized, vetted source for them for getting that information and being able to implement it and ask questions is what we need. And I'm proud to say that I'm one of the people that's working towards that end. Uh, it's rather ambitious, but I believe that we will get there. And I do know keto is not for everyone. There's some people would, you know, that told if they had a choice, if it was a clear cut choice and somebody was to say to them, either eat keto or die, which I mean, it's never going to happen that uh -huh. way, but you know, eat keto yeah. or die, they would go, well, I'd rather die than give up my comfort food. So, uh, mm. and it sounds kind of unbelievable to me that some people would think that way, but it's true. And I'm sure that, you know, you could think of some people right off the bat who would make that choice, would be able to make that kind of choices. No, nope, I'm not giving up my uh, carbohydrates. My own sister said that to me. My own sister right. said that to me. She knows oh, yeah. what I do. She saw <laughs> what happened with my son and she would not be willing to give up her carbohydrates. Well, you know, as the last thing I'll say, I mean, there's, most people, you know, myself included, you don't make changes because everything seems okay unless a crisis hits. And then when a crisis hits, you're all of a sudden, okay, 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 I'll do it. You know, so what people say and what they actually would do if faced with a life or death situation is sometimes very different. But I understand what yeah. you're saying. I mean, I've heard that yeah. too. So, yeah. yeah. Even with a life-threatening situation, some people still won't because they somehow just don't choose to make that choice. So I understand Right. And I, I understand it, too. And that's one of the most important. Now, that's the first question I ask people when they contact when the adult children or relatives or friends of somebody with cancer contacts me. The first thing I'm going to ask them is, have you discussed this with your mom or dad or, you know, and are they willing to make these changes? Because if they're uh, not, yep, yep. this is, you know, this is a non-starter. Yep. Definitely. Well, Miriam, I really appreciate you coming. Uh, thanks for taking your time. Thanks for the opportunity to share this with your audience. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. 
Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.